Hi, this is Ben Lowell of Back to the Bible Canada. We're continuing our series, This is Our God, today with a message speaking of the God of wisdom and knowledge. So what is the difference between the two? A message you'll want to hear. So let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. We live in a culture that highly regards education and the acquiring of knowledge and the mastery of a field of endeavor. We love experts. We quote experts. And if you're not paying attention to the experts, you're, you're no doubt ignorant. So whether we're talking about global warming or the state of the Canadian dollar, we always trot out the experts who will inform the rest of us of what we need to know. But it's also true that whereas we love knowledge, we're not good at wisdom. We have endless classes in university covering all manner of fields of knowledge, but I'm not aware of many that even touch on the matter of wisdom. What university or trade school offers classes for developing skills in living life well? It's been said that we know how to send a human being to the surface of the moon. We're just not certain about what to do once we get there. We found out how to map the human genome. We're just not sure about the morality of manipulating it. We can help you get the best of professions. We just don't do much to help you make an excellent life. The difference between knowledge and wisdom is the difference between gaining insight into the nature of things and being able to choose that which is good and best and right. There's a funny story that's told of a group of leading professors at a university who were in a faculty meeting. Suddenly, an angel appears and tells the dean of the university that he has been chosen to receive one of three gifts. It will be his choice. He will get infinite wealth or infinite beauty or infinite wisdom. Which will he choose? But he can only have one. Without even a moment of hesitation, the dean says that he will take infinite wisdom. With that, the angel announces it's done and promptly disappears. You know, the room goes quiet and everyone's staring at the dean, waiting for him to speak. What would a man of infinite wisdom say? Finally, after a long pause, one of the faculty members whispers, say something. And then finally, at long length, the dean, speaking out of infinite wisdom, says, I should have taken the money. Now, don't take that joke too seriously, but it does illustrate that at many times, we don't know what's best. Wisdom is knowing how to choose and then to act in keeping with the best possible outcome. It's easy to see how wisdom and knowledge work together. Unless we have knowledge, it's hard to see how to choose well. But without wisdom, knowledge is of no advantage. Paul said, knowledge puffs up. And we know how true that is. How often have arrogance and an inflated sense of self-importance been paired with knowledge? We're talking about the attributes of God. And today we want to talk about the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Let's start with knowledge. 1 John 3 verse 20 says of God that he knows everything. That statement seems fairly simple, but in fact, it's not. Our task is, first of all, to ask ourselves what everything entails, and then to ask what the consequence of omniscience or knowledge of all things means for us. So let's begin. What does everything mean? I once studied under a professor who held to something called open theism. It's called open theism because people in this mindset believe that the future is open, meaning that the future is undetermined. They believe that unless this is so, all that is left is fatalism and the illusion that human choices are not real and they really don't matter. 
But if the future is open or undetermined, then God himself cannot know the future. And so my professor would always argue that God knows only those things that can be known. And since the future cannot be known, then no one, not even God, can know it. Well, what does the Bible say? Remember, we've been making the point that knowing God is not an exercise in imagining what we think God might be like. Because God has condescended to disclose himself to us, what does God tell us about himself? When he says he knows everything, what does everything entail? So before plunging right into the question of the future, let's try to be more comprehensive. First, let's notice that the Bible says that God knows everything about himself. 1 Corinthians 2.11 says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. To understand how thoroughly the spirit of God comprehends the thoughts of God, the previous verse stated, The spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now through the persons of the Trinity, God has completely and objectively known himself. There's nothing about God that God does not know. God knows himself in a way that you and I can never know ourselves. You see, we can only view ourselves as the subject of our observations, but God can view himself as the object of his observations. He can do this because he's triune. The Spirit can objectively observe the Father, so forth. Furthermore, our knowledge of ourselves is hopelessly incomplete. Occasionally, we surprise ourselves by what we do or say or feel, and then we ask, I wonder where that came from. Sometimes we may visit a therapist or or be a part of a group that's based on self-discovery. But the process is never complete, and as we find out, there are always more areas that we can discover about ourselves. But God's knowledge is both complete and objectively accurate. He knows his actions, his motivations, his perfections, and his makeup. God has searched out the depths of God. God knows everything about God. And because that's so, we know that the only reliable source of information that we have on God is God. That's why this entire series on the nature of God is not about theory or experience or the prevailing mood of the day or philosophical speculations. Ours has been the study of what God has disclosed in the Bible. The Bible is the only objective source of information that we have about God. Well, what else does God know? Well, we know that God knows all things about the creation. Job 28 verse 24 says, He looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. Nothing in the created universe escapes his complete and accurate observation. When God rebukes Job for his arrogance in Job 38:4-7, he says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstones, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? You see, what Job doesn't know, God knows completely. There's a vast difference between what the most brilliant scientist has discovered about nature and creation and what God knows. God knows all the science behind every act of creation, for he himself is the author of that science. Furthermore, God knows every small and every grand fact of nature. Jesus said that God has numbered the grains of sand. 
He knows their specific number. He also knows everything about every molecule that he has made and exactly how large or how small every particle in the universe is. But God also knows us. Hebrews 4 verse 13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. To say that we are naked before God means that God is completely aware of every facet of our physical makeup. If cancer is now growing in our body, he knows. God also knows your psychology. He knows what you love and hate. He knows what motivates you and what fails to. In Matthew 10, verse 30, Jesus said that God even numbers the hairs of your head. In Matthew 6, 18, Jesus said that your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Again, God's knowledge of us is as comprehensive and as objective as it can be. See, up to now, we've said that God knows all things that presently exist, but also God knows all things in the past. Psalm 90, verse 4 says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. That would mean that events in the long distant past have not slowly faded from God's memory. God recalls them as if they had happened only a second ago. All facts and all events are always fully present in God's consciousness. He doesn't have to retrieve information. He is at all times fully conscious of and fully attuned to every piece of information at once. There's never a moment in which he is not fully aware of everything in the past or in the present. See, I know that I'm not like that. Neither are you. See, I may recount an individual I've met 10 years ago and may struggle to remember the man or the woman's name. But God is never like that. And by the way, when Isaiah 43 verse 25 says, I will remember your sins no more, it does not mean that God has suddenly developed amnesia. See, what Isaiah is communicating is that the knowledge of our rebellion will never be counted against us again. But God never forgets. God never distorts the facts. God never misunderstands what exists. His knowledge is as complete as it can be. But what about the future? Well, we're going to discuss that when we come back. God knows all things. There's nothing that escapes his attention, nothing that has happened or is happening that is lost to him. As Dr. Neufeld suggested, his knowledge is complete. So what about the future? Well, let's hear what the Bible says about God, the future, and more about the nature of his wisdom right after the break. If you're like me, one hearing of a message like this is not enough. And to be honest, it's these kinds of messages that I'm compelled to pass on to a friend. So how do I listen again? What do I recommend to others? Well, I recommend the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app. It's free, it's easily downloaded to your smartphone, and you'll never miss another message again. And even better, every message, every series will always be available to you to go back and listen to one more time. So download the Back to the Bible Canada app today on the Apple or Google Play Store and join thousands of others who have. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Does God know the future? Or is it, as some say, that the future is open? You know, for us, the question is not first to discuss the philosophical ramifications of what an open or a closed future might look like, but to examine carefully what God has said about himself. 
Let's not begin with a philosophical discussion. Let's begin with a confidence that what God says is true, and then from that vantage point, try to understand what the ramifications might be for us. Let's start with Isaiah 46, 8 to 10. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. You know, the intent of this passage is to firmly establish that when God makes a plan in regard to the future, that plan stands or that plan will be accomplished. The reason God can say that in this passage is not just because he has the power to do what he purposes, but according to this text, it's because God can declare the end from the beginning. For God can speak just as authoritatively about ancient times as he can about things not yet done or things in the future. The point in Isaiah is that God knows the future with as clear a certainty as he knows the past. Let's turn to Daniel 2.28. This passage is a part of the troubles that had begun in ancient Babylon. The king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream, and none of the wise men in his kingdom is able to interpret it, but Daniel, the young Hebrew, who knows the God of Israel, can interpret the dream. In Daniel 2, verse 28, Daniel tells the king, There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. See, in this passage, we learn that God is going to tell Nebuchadnezzar what will happen because he knows what will happen. In Psalm 139, verse 4, David says, Before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. In Isaiah 42, verse 9, God says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. In Exodus 3, verse 19, God tells Moses, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. That would mean that God knew exactly how Pharaoh would respond to Moses before that event actually happened. One of the classic passages in the Bible about God's knowledge of the future comes to us in Isaiah 41. In that passage, God is mocking the false gods or the idols that many in Israel have begun to worship. Listen to what the true God says of the idols, and I'm reading from Isaiah 41, verses 22 to 23. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. From that passage, the ability to know the future is an indication that one is dealing with the true God. But because these idols don't know the future, a conclusion is reached in Isaiah 41, verse 24. Behold, you're nothing, and your work is less than nothing, an abomination is he who chooses you. In short, if the God you imagine does not know the future, that God is worthless. And so the biblical account is actually quite clear. God makes the case that you can tell whether God is truly God by his ability to know the future with just as much clarity as he knows the past. So much for open theism, these gods are worthless. Open theism is simply an idol. But what do we make of the idea that if the future is not open, then human beings can't be free moral agents and that this leads to fatalism? 
Well, at the outset, I need to say that the answer to this requires much more time than I can give to it here. But if you stay tuned for tomorrow, I'm going to touch on that matter. But for now, let's notice that the God who knows everything and that the God who cannot lie has told us that he has perfect knowledge of the future, and he's also told us that human beings can and do make real and free moral choices, and that the choices we make do have a bearing on eternity. Both the God who knows the future and that we make free moral choices, both of these things are true. We know they're true because God has told us they're true. Again, more about this tomorrow. But for our purposes, let's move from the knowledge of God to the wisdom of God. Romans 16 verse 27 calls God the only wise God. One of the key passages in the wisdom of God is found in Job 12, 13 to 25. It's part of an extended speech by Job. With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the water, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away stripped, and judges he makes fools. He looses the bonds of kings and binds a waistcloth on their hips. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows the mighty. He deprives of speech those who are trusted and takes away the discernment of elders. He pours contempt on princes and loosens the belt of the strong. He uncovers the deeps out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a pathless waste. They grope in the dark without light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Now, the reason I read that long passage is because in it, we can see the overlap between the wisdom of God and his meticulous sovereignty. The world is not a happenstance place, but God is right now governing matters about which we have very little idea. This includes the water level of rivers, the appointing of world leaders, the appropriate time for a scientific discovery to come to light, the expansion or the collapse of nations, and whether men listen to wisdom or whether they delight in foolishness. Again, these matters are matters we're going to discuss tomorrow, but for today, please notice that all these matters require wisdom. The choice of when a nation should become great or collapse is up to God. It's his choice, and he does not hesitate to make it. But wisdom means that when God makes a choice, he makes that choice with the best possible outcome in mind. God never chooses a course and then later comes to realize that he's made a mistake. See, most often when the New Testament discusses the wisdom of God, it does so in relation to our salvation. 1 Corinthians 1, 20-21 says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. You know, part of the wonder of our salvation is its simplicity. In wisdom, when God decided how our salvation should be wrought, he made the wise decision that his salvation would be given not through education or advanced learning, but in the utter simplicity of believing that Christ died for us. 
Augustine thought that the story of our salvation was so simple that a child would grasp it with ease, and yet it was so rich and deep in wisdom that the most learned man or woman in the world would drown in its depth. In wisdom, God made it possible for those who are not educated or powerful or have no earthly wealth, even those who are despised in the world, to come to him in utter simplicity. This is the demonstration of God's wisdom. We haven't had opportunity to discuss how God arranges all things for the good of those who love him, or how, when we learn from God, we ourselves receive a heart of wisdom. There's so much more to say about the wisdom of God. We should remember, however, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. The more we know of God and stand in awe of his perfections, the wiser we become. John, I really love this message. You gave me so much to think about regarding the difference between the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God. Help us unpack that just a little bit more, and how does it relate to us? Yeah, you know, um, wisdom, of course, we think about the book of Proverbs, and it's, it's the book of wisdom. It's part of what we call wisdom literature in the Bible. And I've heard a lot of different uh, definitions of wisdom, but I think the best one I've ever heard came to me from uh, Dr. Bruce Waltke, uh, who said that wisdom is fundamentally skill in living. The wise man or woman is skillful in navigating the issues of life. They make decisions for the best possible good, whereas the unwise individuals always end up in ruin and heartache along the way. And so God himself, when we say he's the only wise God, we say that the decisions that God makes in regards to all things end up always to his glory and the long-term good of all of his followers. There are never exceptions to that. You see, that's the amazing thing about God's wisdom. When you think about the choices, you know, uh, Ben, when I think about the choices that God makes about all things all of the time, every single choice is the best possible choice that can be made in a given situation. Of course, because God knows all things, his choices are always in, in dealing with his own knowledge, but those choices always serve the, the goals that God has. Never is a choice an unwise one. I mean, so how, how great is the depth of the wisdom of God? That's really what we are left to ponder. What can we do but marvel and feel this great sense of comfort and awe when we begin to understand something of the nature of God's wisdom? Wisdom beyond our capacity to grasp. Wisdom that determined how the greatest gift of all, our salvation, would be made available. And isn't it reassuring to know that the outcome of God's wisdom is always the very best? He makes no mistakes. This brings us to one of the most significant truths about God, and we'll discuss this tomorrow. One that is spoken of often, but understood less, that He, our God, is the God of sovereign rule. Join us tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada. The two have become one. Well, I'm not referring to an actual marriage, but to the coming together of two great resources, Bible Matters and Life Matters. It's going to create one great new ministry magazine called Truth and Life. The Truth and Life magazine will contain excellence in Bible teaching articles, as well as articles that provide insight into the difficult issues of daily life and living. Regular articles by Dr. Neufeld, Phil Calloway, Isaac Dagno, but also insightful interviews and the thoughts of experts in the areas of marriage, parenting, and just life in general. 
So if you don't already receive one of our publications, make sure to ask for your free Truth and Life magazine and have it delivered free. You can subscribe right now by signing up online at backtothebible.ca, laughagain.ca, or giving us a call at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Back to the Bible Canada, bringing the truth of God's Word to life.